I am on a mission to help organizations drive long-term success and results by implementing an unshakable transformation model. This model puts the employee at the center and works outward to support every aspect of the human experience in the workplace. Welcome to the Human Method Podcast. I am your host, Megan Bond, founder and CEO of the Bond Consulting Group. This podcast is designed to explore incredible guests as experts in a variety of professions and experiences to learn more about the tools that will transform an organization one person at a time. If you are seeking to improve yourself and how you live your life, or an organizational leader seeking to make a larger impact on your company through culture change, then this podcast is for you. If you are interested in learning more about personal or organizational transformation, I would love to connect with you. You can chat with me today at www.thebondconsultinggroup.com. Be sure to subscribe and get easy access to future episodes. Thank you and enjoy today's episode of The Human Method. Join me in welcoming our next guest, the Director of Global Commercial Data Science at Merck. He has considerable leadership experience in helping build and operationalize data science solutions in healthcare settings. Prior to Merck, he worked at Sidious Tech, where as Director of Data Science, he helped to launch several data science products. He has also held data science leadership roles with Highmark and Aetna focusing primarily on analytic enablement and capability modernization. Before joining the corporate side, he served as a founding member and chief data science scientist at an AI-driven energy efficiency startup, EMI. He holds a PhD in engineering from CMU, or Carnegie Mellon, and a bachelor's in physics and mathematics from Oberlin College. He is passionate about impactful problem solving at scale through intelligent use of data and design. And outside of work, he spends an inordinate amount of time thinking about human behavior, systems, the history of civilizations, the stock market, and inefficiencies in our day-to-day lives. So beyond being a philosopher um, and data scientist, He is also known for singing mostly off-key after a few beers. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to a dear friend, Suman Giri. Suman, thank you for being with us today. Hey, Megan. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, well, uh, before we get started, Suman, I do want to question this off-key singing after a few beers because Mm -hmm. you and I have had a few beers before. Well, I've probably had wine. Um, I never had the pleasure of, of hearing you in song. Is there a reason for this? Mm. Um, there probably is, Megan. So as you know, off-key <laughs> singing exactly, exactly is the most pleasing of sounds, right? So I probably was looking not to embarrass myself in front of you. That's probably <laughs> the only reason I could think of. Well, as a sidebar, some have called me a lyrical genius. I'm really good at freestyle rapping. <laughs> Okay. Um, All so right. maybe we could we could do a little duet sometime. Just putting Absolutely. that out there in the universe. All, All right. right, bring it on. <laughs> okay, Suman, so let's dive right in and I'm I'm so curious about having this conversation with you because you know I've had the pleasure of working with you in the past and 
while a brilliant mind in, in data science and in the work that you do, you also have a knack for understanding the human experience in comparison or in parallel with technology rollouts. And this seems to be such a challenging topic for so many organizations. I you know, support companies that are either really human focused but aren't necessarily as evolved with the tech side or of course vice versa where you have companies that are, are so encumbered or and so enamored with the tech side of things that the human really falls to the wayside. And I, I wanna dive into learning first a little bit about your experience with data innovation in the workplace. And then as we begin to converse, I wanna talk more about the, the human experience um, and connection to the technology experience in the workplace. So to get started, tell us a little bit about, about your background with technology. Uh, first of all, thank you for the nice things you said. I think I like talking to you because you kind of hype me up um, a lot more than what I bring to the table. So always a good thing. Um, but uh, speaking of my background, I think I like to think of myself as a technologist. Um, that's what I trained for. Uh, as you alluded to earlier, um, I studied physics and math in college. During my PhD, I actually worked on applications of machine learning in the energy efficiency space. Um, since then, I've worked in startups, in small and large organizations, and domain-wise, I've been on a journey of sorts to discover and understand the healthcare domain. So, so far, I've worked in payer organizations, payer provider, where we crossed paths, health tech, and for the past year, I've been in pharma. And all of these roles have been like various forms of data science and technology-related roles. Um, curiously though, most of the large organizations that I've been in have been undergoing some sort of data transformation. Um, so jokingly, I like to say that I have developed a niche specialization in undergoing transformations as well. I'm so glad you brought up that term so early in the conversation. So let's jump right into this idea of data, data transformations. It's, I feel, a ubiquitous term these days. It's everywhere you turn. And... I'm curious how you personally define data transformation and do you think there is one clear definition for this? There probably isn't one clear definition, um, but maybe we can get to at least a couple of definitions by reverse engineering the intentions behind said transformations. Um, so there are some orgs that have organically realized that to survive, they need to be more efficient or more intelligent. Um, and then there's like some orgs that have seen the space evolve and are doing it either from a branding or a, a formal perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, so they're basically doing it just in case. Um, so depending on the genesis of the said transformation, the investment, seriousness, risk appetite, innovation, and attitude for the transformation can be different, which then results in like slightly different definitions. Um, now going back to your question about how I would define it, I would say a data transformation is an optimization of the process of getting from business questions to actionable and accurate insights. And the variables you can play around with to achieve this optimization are people, org structure, data, infrastructure, way of working, culture, and any relevant feedback loops. Yeah, and I think you just answered this question, but if we were to get really specific on the goal of data transformation, if you were to be able to put it in 
layman's terms in a few sentences, how would you describe data transformation um, as far as, again, the goal of it within a company? I guess you could look at it from a whole company's perspective mm -hmm. and say it is to increase either efficiency or productivity of whatever goods and services the company provides. Um, I think some clever companies have a secondary goal as well. Uh, as you know, data sits at the center of many, if not all, organizations within a company. So by transforming the function that is essentially the glue that binds everything together, you can spread an innovative and possibly proactive way of thinking about certain problems. So driving that kind of thinking could also be a goal of data transformation. Absolutely. And with your experience, I, I want to now bring the human into the conversation now that we've defined data transformation and the, the really overarching goal and theme of what it is, there seems to be, as I said earlier, this ongoing challenge between human adoption of technology deployments. Why do you think adoption is so challenging, especially when we seek to use technology to create efficiencies and make things easier? It's a great question. So a few reasons that come to mind are lack of proper user research, um, not involving the customers from the beginning, lack of transparency on how the technology works, lack of good storytelling, um, et cetera. Uh, imagine you're somebody who's been doing something for, I don't know, like a dozen year, a dozen, a dozen years. redo this. Yeah, imagine you're somebody who's been doing something for 10 years. Now suddenly a bunch of tech guys, and they're mostly guys, as you know, come in and tell you to change your way of working and adopt this new shiny thing that you know nothing about, right? What are you going to do? You're just going to tune them out, which is sadly how a lot of tech deployments work today. And I think that is why we face these challenges. Have you ever seen a rollout go well? And what were the qualities of that rollout that drove its success? Uh, this is an interesting one. So I... Um, let me tell you about first my experience with rollouts and then maybe we'll find something that went well somewhere there. Okay. Um, so my experience has mostly been that, especially when tech deployments happen, um, there is this build and they'll come mentality, right? Which mm -hmm. uh, is a relic of the past, I believe. Um, so most team that I lead these days for this reason have a dedicated UX function. Mm -hmm. um, and we, index heavily on interpretability over complexity. Um, and we remind ourselves that without the customer, there is no technology. I've also found that good storytelling, specifically about how the tech is going to benefit the end users um, is, is key. And also explaining to them how the whole technology works behind the scenes in a language that makes sense to them goes a long way in generating that trust. Um, and finally, I think the worst way to deploy your technology is by overselling it. Mm. Right. I've found people to be a lot more amenable to taking risks when you lead by saying, hey, we have this cool thing that we think is going to make your life better, uh, but we're not sure if you want to help us experiment with it. Now, suddenly, both of you are on the same side and the, the problem is on the other side, which I think leads to a, a much stronger collaboration. Um, so this, these are kind of themes that I've picked up over the course of my career. Um, I don't think there's a single deployment that has went really well, if, if you ask my definition of well, but I've maybe there are parts of this that they have done well, 
that I think I'm hoping to kind of capture and and take with me as I move uh, through organizations or move through deployments. Absolutely. And Suman, on the technology side of these rollouts, I'm guessing that typically from the human side, companies that you support will bring in change management or someone from human resources to guide that that lane of of the rollout. Do you feel like that's the right fit, maybe the right role, but perhaps the work isn't being done in the right way? Or do you think that there's another type of role that maybe hasn't been invented yet? If you could get really outside of the box with this question, um, what role do you think would be ideal in connecting technology to human in a digestible way? See, I think um, the way it's done, or I've seen it done today, is the technology gets built, right? Maybe there's a little bit of user input. And then it's passed over to a separate team and quote unquote change management is done, which is effectively ticking a box, maybe sending some PowerPoints and then leaving it up to the user to kind of just do whatever they will, right? Um, if you evaluate or measure adoption and just success post deployment in, in situations like these, inevitably you open up room for um, either, let's say biases that come because of um, like lack of understanding of how to use the technology or just lack of excitement, right? Like if mm-hmm. it's something that's been forced upon you as an end user and you're not even um, excited to use it, then you probably just again get into the ticking the box mentality. So my view is that change management is not something that comes at the end. Change mm-hmm. management is something you start with, right? Like you, and again, this goes back to the user experience or user research function that I talked about. Um, you need to be thinking about how your end users are going to interact with your technology from day one. And you need to be training them on how their workflow is going to look like post-deployment from day one. I have not, I'm yet to see this being implemented in large organizations well. I mean, there are organizations that are trying, uh, but I, uh, sadly, I haven't seen um, change or adoption of the said technology Uh, be part of the story from day one. Mm. I couldn't agree more with that. And I, I, I think that that too is what is missing. What is your view on bringing, bringing the user into that first step as well, actually bringing the end user into the build of the technology, or do you think that maybe wouldn't be the right place to do that? Here's how I see it, right? So I think there is a lot more focus on, technology and not enough focus on the problem, right? The user doesn't care about the technology, right? The user actually cares about some problem that they have that either they're aware of or they're not, right? Now you have to first figure out like, is if it's a problem that they're not aware of because maybe their world life could be made better because maybe they're doing something, let's say manually or in a more inefficient way. And somehow some technologist or some leader has decided that there could be a potential here to leverage some technology to either make it more efficient or productive, then you need to work with your eventual customers from day one to figure out, okay, if this is a problem and um, what is the kind of solution that you are likely to adopt, right? What kind of solution would make sense? And what does your revised workflow look like as a result of this new deployment? Mm -hmm. And are you going to be happy with this new workflow? You know, because maybe they, 
it maybe it makes their life better, maybe it's more efficient, but if the end users do not like the new workflow because maybe there there is five or six different touch points that they hadn't anticipated or they didn't need to do before, or maybe they were so good at doing, let's say, the inefficient work because they've been doing it for tens of years, and now suddenly this is going to add a lot more friction into their day-to-day jobs, then they are not likely to adopt it, right? So I think the, the lens should be of problem solving first, like a workflow that is going to make sense to the end user second. And then the third thing is then that's when you get to technology and say, okay, how can we use technology to get to this new stage where your workflow is going to be better, but also the efficiency and productivity is going to increase as well. Why do you think that this is so hard? And, and maybe this is absolutely not the right question for you, but you have me now in a thought stream. Why do you think it's so hard for organizations to do those three steps? Like, why isn't that happening right now? Because I think we know this. I don't think this this information is, is unique to you and I. I think other many other people agree with everything we're talking about. Why do you think it's not happening? Um, I think it goes back to, like, the variables that you have to optimize rollouts, right? So things like org structure, mm. things like the, the people that you have, mindset, attitude, et cetera, plays a big role as well. But also, I mean, you. I think there's a tendency, and, and it's a natural human tendency to focus on something that is, quote unquote, sexy, right? What is sexy? Technology is sexy, right? So uh, let's say somebody um, goes to a, a conference um, and let's say looks at a new, um, I don't know, I'm just making this up, like an algorithm that, a deep learning algorithm that, um, classifies tumor types, right? Now they will come back and say, okay, now we need this. Um, and suddenly uh, people who've been either manually looking at, let's say your uh, charts to figure out whether there's tumors are faced with the prospect of having this new technology be part of their workflow. And it's not clear to them what part of the decision should be left up to the human being. Uh, it's still up to them, in fact, and what percent should be left to the new technology. So just this, I think the, what I'm talking about here is, is a downstream impact of just focusing or over-indexing on the technology piece first, um, and then just trying to push it down a workflow where it may or may not make any sense. And, and that's probably why it's a little bit difficult because the way we are set up, uh, we are set up to kind of focus on things that are tangible, um, that are sexy, that you can talk about, right? As opposed to focusing on impact, which is slightly longer term, and it's the boring stuff, you know, it's like getting people along with you, uh, figuring out what their workflows are, what their pain points are, and then tackling them one by one using the right approach. Mm, so interesting. And I also think that, you know, going back to your philosophy background and your yeah. spare time, uh, you know, I think there's a philosophical aspect to this, too, if we really go deep into this technology, also, as people do begin to adopt it creates almost this this variety of ADHD culture where, you know, I've worked with companies that have five or six different platforms for communication. So you're sending something on Teams and then you're working in Slack and then you're sending an email and then someone's receiving a text. And in, in bringing in all this cool, sexy, shiny new technology, I think we are also training humans to be somewhat sporadic in their thought process. And I think one of the hardest skill sets to find these days and one of the best skill sets to have is focus. And I think we're losing our ability to really focus and going back to the things you were talking about, really getting to the root of the problem. 
um, rather than what's the cool technology. Stopping and, and taking a breath to think about, okay, how can we roll this out in a way that's impactful? When should we involve the, per the end user? When should we involve change management? We're not doing those things because in a way, I think the technology that's supposed to serve us has trained us to serve it. Um, and I think that, you know, there's, there's a challenge to be had with that as well. And, you know, there's no question here, but more of really, what are your thoughts or let's converse about this, this theme for a second. Absolutely. Absolutely. I could not agree more. I would even say um, that uh, today, part of the reason this exists, right? Like this lack of focus. I, I like to joke that uh, I see teams, everybody is doing everything and nobody is doing anything at the same time. It's like the, the Schrodinger's cat analogy of, of the corporate side, right? And then part of it is, if, if you go back to incentive structures, like what do we reward? Is essentially, we seem to reward um, this, let's say somebody who brings in new technology, new platforms, because that causes a splash, right? We seem to reward um, having your hands on multiple things so that you can claim, hey, I've done these five things within this span of time, as opposed to doing any one particular thing really well. And if you look at um, examples from some tech companies like Amazon, right, the, the famous, I don't know, five or six pagers that the executives have to read before they come into any meeting, like in a lot of these, or a lot of organizations, that's not even a possibility because we are kind of, uh, we, we are reacting based on how the technologies that we have brought in have trained us, right? So a PowerPoint, I hate PowerPoints because of this reason, because it does not allow for a meaningful discourse of ideas. Mm -hmm. It's just summary mode automatically, right? Because you can't really put a lot of text in PowerPoint and you're just like summarizing it. And now your audience gets maybe half of it. Like tomorrow, it'll because of ad stock and maybe like just natural decay of information, they'll retain 20% of it. And suddenly you'll find a situation where a whole group is working on 20% of the information uh, about a topic where 80% of the actual meat is lost because nobody cares to bother about the details. A lot of this is a function of how we are interacting with technology. And a lot of it is probably is also how the technology was defined or, or designed in the first place, right? I doubt when Microsoft made PowerPoint back in the day, they thought this would be the, the seminal vehicle through which ideas would be distributed for, I don't know, like 20 years, you know, but now here we are. Um, and uh, a lot of your point about focus and, and a bunch of tools that we have resonated with me because I think they were trying to solve one niche problem, but they couldn't really predict how people were going to interact with it. And now suddenly we find ourselves in this weird situation where our culture is a function of these tools. Absolutely. So interesting. All right. So speaking of how we interact with tools, um, I want to talk about a process that is often used with, with technology teams when um, they seek to build these tools. And so agile, agile methodology is a really well-known methodology. It's a process that people seem to like. It's focused on process improvement. And we can also look at Lean Six Sigma. I personally, and know this may be controversial to some, but I personally am not a fan of Agile. I think that it handcuffs the team to a step-by-step -step way of doing something without leaving room to breathe um, or use and fail. So I'm curious, 
you know, being on these various teams in your in your career history, Suman, what has your experience been with Agile and how do you feel about this methodology? So I've been thinking a lot about Agile, especially during the pandemic. So this trade-off between resiliency and efficiency is an interesting topic, right? As I'm sure you know, a lot of systems crumbled under the shock of the pandemic, especially industries that relied on hyper-efficiency, right? Like the, the whole lean and agile um, philosophy. Um, in fact, the global supply chain right now is at serious risk because of this inherent hyper-efficiency that was part of the process. Uh, and it's now not able to cope with a series of unexpected shocks. Um, so there's like articles all over the place around how, let's say, um, Christmas gifts are going to be in short supply this year just because of all of the external shocks that have accumulated over time. Um, so maybe we'll get to a world because of this, where a new philosophy of project management would evolve with the right balance between resiliency and speed. Um, anyway, so I go back and forth on Agile. It is a good way to impose structure on what is typically a chaotic process. Mm -hmm. uh, but for things like data science, which is the domain of tech that I represent, it doesn't naturally allow room for experimentation. Right, as steps B to Z might look drastically different depending on what we find in step A. Um, so there's probably no right answers here, but Agile is the best we've got. I would say instead of following it like the commandments, we follow it like the CDC's guidelines. <laughs> um, useful to know, but use your own common sense too from time to time. Very good. I like your, your spin on Agile. And I, I'm putting it out there for anyone listening that is in project management or that is familiar with Agile. If somebody wants to be the first person to come up with a philosophy that's better, more advanced than agile, please do so and let, let Sumana, Suman and I know as soon as possible. We'll be thrilled to roll that out to the companies we support. All right. Um, I want to connect all of this to the bigger picture, Suman. So oftentimes coming from a change management and um, an HR background, I have sensed that organizations, when it comes to technology rollouts, focus their training and development efforts on kind of like what you said earlier, preparing people to do the job without actually getting buy-in. Um, and really the way I see it, we tend to treat employees as widgets. So they're here to do a focused task. We're going to give them a very esoteric frame of reference um, to be really good at their job or maybe their future job, but we're not looking at the whole person. And I think there's a holistic approach to be had here where instead of addressing a sliver of a person, we can focus on a more immersive human experience. And I think there's such a focus on technology as a separate entity to add another layer to it than the human experience in an organization. We're not truly introducing technology to human and vice versa. We're simply developing a tool and then, as you said, build it and they will come. And then we're leaving it for, for someone to either adopt or not adopt. And if you look at the statistics, I think it's something like 73% of all technology rollouts fail. So with all of that, it's very loquacious. Um, what has your experience been with rollouts? I know we've talked about this at length, but what specifically have you noticed or uncovered around human adoption within these rollouts? Sure. Um, so humans, and I'm projecting here a little bit, um, by and large, don't like being told what to do. Mm -hmm. Right. If you just dump a technology on me and ask me to use it because you claim that it is amazing and I'll have to take your word for it, then I probably am not going to use it 
or if you force me, I'll use it in a suboptimal way. Instead, if you ask me what I need and between my pain points and your grand vision as a technologist, we arrive at a middle ground that is both fancy enough to get you excited and useful enough to get me excited, then maybe we're getting somewhere. So this goes back to my earlier point about UX and involving users um, and, and indexing on interpretability and transparency and focusing on the problem um, uh, that needs to be solved, right? Especially, especially true for AI systems, which are generally considered black box systems and elicit a certain kind of apprehension amongst its end users anyways. Um, uh, I um, was listening to this um, kind of HBR post podcast uh, around jobs to be done, you know, like this, uh, like a management guru from, um, I believe, Harvard uh, Business School who recently passed away. And he has this theory of jobs to be done. So instead of focusing on the tools, if you focus on jobs to be done, right? Like what is our end user trying to do and how can you help them? How can your tool or whatever rollout you have help them get that job done better? I think that is, is the winning philosophy. And it's a, a time for us to go back to the basics in many ways uh, of these management principles as we think about all of these fancy tools that we have. I like that. Going back to the basics. So, Suman, what is one piece of advice that you would like to give to organizations that are moving through it? We'll go back to the term digital transformation. <laughs> so, as you know, I find, have a hard time finding just one piece of advice. So I'll say my one piece of advice is to follow the following three pieces of advice. <laughs> okay. So focus on the process first people second, and technology at the end. That should be number one. Number two, don't focus on doing Agile, focus on being Agile. Uh, number three, incentivize experimentation and create feedback loops that help you evolve. I like all of those. However, I am going to challenge you on, why are we focusing on the process before the people? This process, so when I say process, I mean it's again focusing on how the problem is being solved today and what does tomorrow look like, right? So does it even make sense? That does the workflow even make sense? And when I say people, I mean like the talent that you hire to kind of fill some of these gaps is a function of what that new process looks like, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say you are um, manually I don't know, like ticking boxes in, um, in, in some physical piece of paper today, that is your workflow. And your company decides that now that needs to be automated. And there's a bunch of options that you have. You could say, hey, I want to build a robotic process automation, build a bot that figures out where the boxes are and tick it on its own. Or you can say, hey, I want to build a machine learning algorithm that figures out what needs to be ticked and we're just going to do it from there, OCR and whatnot, right? So I'm just making some random hypothetical example here. But the, so now if, you, now, like if you take that process of these options that uh, could potentially solve your existing process and um, co connect with your end user and you decide, okay, like this is what makes sense because this has the minimal number of touch points, but I can still exercise my creativity and then control over the process. That's when you can say, okay, now what kind of talent do I need to enable this kind of technology rollout, right? After that, you bring the technologists and let them decide what kind of tool they need to bring in to enable this rollout. So I, I see it from a technology lens. So when I say people, I, I think about the tech talent. 
Um, but that, I think, is the natural order of doing things. Sadly, it, it's the opposite in most organizations, right? Like the technology is bought first, and then the people to use the technology are brought second. And then third is when we think about the process and try to fit kind of a square peg in a round hole um, in, in these instances. Very, very interesting. Okay, I get it. Um, in your opinion, where actually, I want to ask this differently. Do you see any specific kinds of technology that may change drastically in the future? Hmm. So I focus on a very narrow kind of section of technology, but I have opinions about a lot of other kind of, um, pieces of technology that I don't have any expertise in. So I'm going to share something with you, uh, which I believe in today. Right. And, and maybe this will change as this technology evolves, or maybe I just don't even understand the technology well enough. But I think there's a specific kind of tech that is going to change drastically over the next five to 10 years. I believe we are going to see a fundamental shift in how information is gathered and how sales and marketing is done across all industries. As you know, the new generation is very privacy conscious. I would probably count you and I as part of that generation. We are beginning to see the effects of this already with iOS 15, disabling email tracking by default. Also the larger cookie-less movement in major browsers, they're kind of blocking the tracking of cookies across you know, websites. Um, and, and with Web3, uh, which is a different kind of look or take on the web becoming more and more mainstream, I think the wild west of unsolicited tracking is coming to an end soon. And organizations will have to become a lot smarter on how they want to reach their customers. This will probably change the digital tools that companies use to communicate with their customers. A lot of will have to be built on the blockchain. Data science will also have to move, move to a similar platform. Um, and surprisingly, I haven't seen a lot of companies talk about this publicly yet. Uh, but the future of tech seems to be on the blockchain. Uh, and I'm, I'm more and more bullish about this uh, in, in recent times. Okay, and for us... Um normal people that aren't tech, tech gurus. What is blockchain? So blockchain in this particular instance, right? Uh, maybe let me tell you what Web3 Web is and why blockchain plays as a role in it, right? So Web1 started, I don't know, in the 90s, early 90s, where it was just a static page. You would go in, um, you would see a bunch of things. Everybody saw the same thing. It was hosted on a central server. Um, Web2 started when there was interactable, uh, interactivity between the web and, and the end user. Right now, there was a different screen for different users. Uh, you go to your Facebook, you see a different page. I go to my Facebook. I actually don't have Facebook, but let's say if I did, I would probably see something completely differently. Um, the, the idea of personalization came to being right now. Co companies tried to, were fighting for your um, kind of attention, right? So you became officially part of the attention economy um, and they were trying to personalize content for you so that you uh, would spend more time on their platforms. As a result, um, the, the, the tracking world opened, right? So now Facebook will, will try to collect as much information about you um, and, and, and try to kind of customize your experience based on that information, but also take that information and sell it to a bunch of other companies would then buy that data and try to kind of customize their experiences or your experiences um, for their product. So there's like a wild west was created where you as a customer did not actually willingly consent to any of this, but a whole economy, billions of dollars of economy was created on the back end. 
what Web3 is trying to do is instead of kind of focusing on uh, a platform or, or, uh, or instead of going to a server, right? All of the applications are going to be built on blockchain, which is a series of distributed nodes or distributed computers, right? So no one computer kind of holds or no one server or no one company holds all of the information. And you, so it prevents, the, it kind of gets at the heart of this idea of centralization, right? So I, I'm sure you heard like Facebook was down for a few hours or I don't know, like a day and Instagram was out and WhatsApp was down. So the centralized companies, like that is a risk that we see because if one of them goes down, then suddenly billions of users are without access to that particular platform, which has like real life implications. Um, so blockchain and, and Web3 kind of tackles that um, at its heart. But also there's a second theme around identity management, right? So today, um, the reason Facebook can even exist is because it can track you across a bunch of other websites. And now it has a holistic picture of who you are. But to do that, it has to like do a bunch of messy stuff on the background to figure out like who Megan Bond is in Facebook versus who Megan Bond is in Twitter versus who she is in Instagram and a bunch of other platforms, let's say PayPal and then whatever else that you use, right? So figuring out that identity, your identity across, let's say 20 different platforms and figuring out that data for you is a huge industry. Um, Web3 tackles that by just saying, hey, you just have a private key. You have one identity on the internet and that is it. Mm -hmm. Everywhere you go, you take that identity with you. So you don't have to log in 20 times to 20 different platforms. You don't have to enter your credit card information 20 times in 20 different places. You know, like there's just one you and now your complete picture is there, but you control who gets to gets access to your information. So it's it's very kind of privacy focused and identity kind of streamlined as well. You just sold me on that. Uh, and and you got me to think about, you know, Instagram and different, different, you know, I know you and I are both on Twitter. And it's interesting, if you think about, on a bigger scale, technology rollouts in life are super easy. I mean, look how many people adopted Instagram and how that exploded. Um, Facebook, another story, not a huge fan. But um, I think that there are definitely, you know, it's, it, What's the difference? Why in, in corporate America do we roll things out that could do the same thing, that could have the same impact, but people are scared and don't want the change and they, they turn from it. But in life, things are simply just put out there and we, we flock to it like moths to a flame. And maybe that's not a question to answer now, but I think it's an interesting one to pose. For sure. Something to think about. It's for our viewers. I want everyone to do yep. it. A, a dissertation after the show and send it in, please. My my address is on the website. Okay. Or you could write write a freestyle rap on it and send it, and you can <laughs> sing it on your show. Well, I think you would be singing. I would be freestyling. We need to find someone to beatbox, and then I think we'd be Oops. really. We probably, right. you know, would be overnight successes. Um, Suman. And what arena do you want to play in the world of tech ultimately? So really, what is the impact you are going to have in this industry? So this is a little bit grandiose, right? So I, the older I get, the more humble I, I become. So it's a difficult question for me to answer. Um, and, and my interest fluctuates quite often as well. And that's why it, it's especially hard uh, for me to answer this. Um, these days, I, I find myself thinking about responsible tech and issues of ethics and fairness in technology. 
especially like in, in a field like healthcare, uh, seemingly innocuous design choices can have profound downstream implications. A bias, whether that be due to data, design choices, or adoption, finds a way to seep in. And if we were to create a fair and equitable world, and the, the jury is out on how you would define it, um, I think enough people need to be asking these questions within, this or within their organizations. Yeah, I love that. Or the ethics piece plays a whole new role in this conversation, and we haven't even touched on that. Um, but I want to be respectful of your time, and I am so appreciative to have you on the show today. I'd love to bring you back and take this conversation into that the ethics piece, because I think that's a really interesting one to have. Um, but until then, Suman, thank you for joining us. Thank you for your conversation, and we appreciate you. Thank you. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Human Method Podcast. I am Megan Bond, and if you are interested in learning more about personal or organizational transformation, I would love to connect with you. You can reach me today at www.thebondconsultinggroup.com. I also want to thank Ayla Zimmerman for design and promotion of not just the human method, but our Bond Consulting Group site as well. She is a kick-ass designer, so please check out our site at thebondconsultinggroup.com. Sign up for our newsletter so that you can receive great content from us. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss our next episode. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme for the show, as always, is to be a little bit better each day. So remember, be better today.